Section 10 of My First Summer in the Sierra. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. My First Summer in the Sierra by John Muir. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. July 29. Bright, cool, exhilarating. Clouds about point zero five. Another glorious day of rambling, sketching, and universal enjoyment. July thirty. Clouds about point two zero, but the regular shower did not reach us, though thunder was heard a few miles off, striking the noon hour. Ants, flies, and mosquitoes seemed to enjoy this fine climate. A few house-flies have discovered our camp. The Sierra mosquitoes are courageous and of good size, some of them measuring nearly an inch from tip of sting to tip of folded wings. Though less abundant than in most wildernesses, they occasionally make quite a hum and stir, and pay but little attention to time or place. They sting anywhere, any time of day whenever they can find anything worth while, until they are themselves stung by frost. The large jet-black ants are only ticklish and troublesome when one is lying down under the trees. Noticed a borer drilling a silver fir. Ovipositor about an inch and a half in length, polished and straight like a needle. When not in use it is folded back in a sheath which extends straight behind like the legs of a crane in flying. This drilling, I suppose, is to save nest-building, and the aftercare of feeding the young. Who would guess that in the brain of a fly so much knowledge could find lodgment? How do they know that their eggs will hatch in such holes, or, after they hatch, that the soft, helpless grubs will find the right sort of nourishment in silver fur sap. This domestic arrangement calls to mind the curious family of gall-flies. Each species seems to know what kind of plant will respond to the irritation or stimulus of the puncture it makes and the eggs it lays, in forming a growth that not only answers for a nest and a home, but also provides food for the young. Probably these gall-flies make mistakes at times, like anybody else, but when they do, there is simply a failure of that particular brood, while enough to perpetuate the species do find the proper plants and nourishment. Many mistakes of this kind might be made without being discovered by us. Once a pair of wrens made the mistake of building a nest in the sleeve of a workman's coat, which was called for at sundown much to the consternation and discomfiture of the birds. Still the marvel remains that any of the children of such small people as gnats and mosquitoes should escape their own and their parents' mistakes, as well as the vicissitudes of the weather and hosts of enemies, and come forth in full vigour and perfection to enjoy the sunny world. When we think of the small creatures that are visible, we are led to think of many that are smaller still, and lead us on and on 
into infinite mystery. July 31 Another glorious day! The air as delicious to the lungs as nectar to the tongue. Indeed, the body seems one palate and tingles equally throughout. Cloudiness about point zero five, but our ordinary shower has not yet reached us, though I hear thunder in the distance. The cheery chipmunk, so common about Brown's flat, is common here also, and perhaps other species. In their light, airy habits they recall the familiar species of the eastern states which we admired in the oak openings of Wisconsin, as they skimmed along the zigzag rail-fences. These Sierra chipmunks are more arboreal and squirrel-like. I first noticed them on the lower edge of the coniferous belt, where the sabine and yellow pines meet. Exceedingly interesting little fellows, full of odd, funny ways, and without being true squirrels, have most of their accomplishments without their aggressive quarrelsomeness. I never weary watching them as they frisk about in the bushes, gathering seeds and berries, like song-sparrows, poising daintily on slender twigs, and making even less stir than most birds of the same size. Few of the Sierra animals interest me more. They are so able, gentle, confiding, and beautiful, they take one's heart and get themselves adopted as darlings. Though weighing hardly more than field-mice, they are laborious collectors of seeds, nuts, and cones, and are therefore well fed, but never in the least swollen with fat or lazily full. On the contrary, of their frisky, bird-like liveliness there is no end. They have a great variety of notes corresponding with their movements some sweet and liquid, like water dripping with twinkling sounds into ponds. They seem dearly to love teasing a dog, coming frequently almost within reach, then frisking away with lively chipping, like sparrows, beating time to their music with their tails, which at each chip describes half-circles from side to side. Not even the Douglas Squirrel is surer-footed or more fearless. I have seen them running about on sheer precipices of the Yosemite walls, seemingly holding on with as little effort as flies, and as unconscious of danger, where, if the slightest slip were made, they would have fallen two or three thousand feet. How fine it would be could we mountaineers climb these tremendous cliffs with the same sure grip! The venture I made the other day for a view of the Yosemite Fall, and which tried my nerves so surely, this little Tamius would have made for an ear of grass. The woodchuck, Arctomis monax, of the bleak mountain-tops, is a very different sort of mountaineer the most bovine of rodents, a heavy eater, fat, aldermanic in bulk and fairly bloated, in his high pastures like a cow in a clover-field. One woodchuck would outweigh a hundred chipmunks. And yet he is by no means a dull animal. In the midst of what we regard as storm-beaten desolation he pipes and whistles right cheerily, and enjoys long life in his skyland homes. 
His burrow is made in disintegrated rocks or beneath large boulders. Coming out of the den in the cold hoar-frost mornings, he takes a sun-bath on some favourite flat-topped rock, then goes to breakfast in garden hollows, eats grass and flowers until comfortably swollen, then goes a-visiting to fight and play. How long a woodchuck lives in this bracing air I don't know, but some of them are rusty and grey like lichen-covered boulders. August 1. A grand cloudland and five-minute shower, refreshing the blessed wilderness, already so fragrant and fresh, steeping the black meadow mould and dead leaves like tea. The wake-up, or flicker, so familiar to every boy in the old Middle West states, is one of the most common of the woodpeckers hereabouts, and makes one feel at home. I can see no difference in plumage or habits from the European species, though the climate here is so different. A fine, brave, confiding, beautiful bird. The robin, too, is here, with all his familiar notes and gestures, tripping daintily on open garden spots and high meadows. All over America he seems to be at home, moving from plains to the mountains, and from north to south, back and forth, up and down, with the march of the seasons and food supply. How admirable the constitution and temper of this brave singer, keeping in cheery health over so vast and varied a range! Oftentimes, as I wander through these solemn woods, awe-stricken and silent, I hear the reassuring voice of this fellow-wanderer ringing out, sweet and clear, Fear not! Fear not! The mountain quail, Oreotix richter, I often meet in my walks, a small brown partridge with very long, slender, ornamental crest worn jauntily like a feather in a boy's cap, giving it a very marked appearance. This species is considerably larger than the valley quail, so common on the hot foothills. They seldom alight in trees, but love to wander in flocks of from five or six to twenty through the ceanothus and manzanita thickets, or over open dry meadows and rocks of the ridges where the forest is less dense or wanting, uttering a low clucking sound to enable them to keep together. When disturbed they rise with a strong burr of wing-beats, and scatter as if exploded to a distance of a quarter of a mile or so. After the danger is past they call one another together with a louder piping note, nature's beautiful mountain chickens. I have not yet found their nests. The young of this season are already hatched and away, new broods of happy wanderers half as large as their parents. I wonder how they live through the long winters, when the ground is snow-covered, ten feet deep. They must go down towards the lower edge of the forest like the deer, though I have not heard of them there. The blue or dusky grouse is also common here. They like the deepest and closest fir-woods, and, when disturbed, burst from the branches of the trees with a strong loud whirr of wing-beats, and vanish in a wavering, silent slide, 
without moving a feather. A stout, beautiful bird, about the size of the prairie chicken of the Old West, spending most of the time in the trees, excepting the breeding season, when it keeps to the ground. The young are now able to fly. When scattered by man or dog, they keep still till the danger is supposed to be past. Then the mother calls them together. The chicks can hear the call a distance of several hundred yards, though it is not loud. Should the young be unable to fly, the mother feigns desperate lameness or death to draw one away, throwing herself at one's feet within two or three yards, rolling over on her back, kicking and gasping, so as to deceive man or beast. They are said to stay all the year in the woods hereabouts, taking shelter in dense tufted branches of fir and yellow pine during snowstorms, and feeding on the young buds of those trees. Their legs are feathered down to their toes, and I have never heard of their suffering in any sort of weather. Able to live on pine and fir buds, they are for ever independent in the matter of food, which troubles so many of us and controls our movements. Gladly, if I could, I would live for ever on pine buds, however full of turpentine and pitch, for the sake of this grand independence. Just to think of our sufferings last month merely for gristmill flour. Man seems to have more difficulty in gaining food than any other of the Lord's creatures. For many in towns it is a consuming, lifelong struggle. For others the danger of coming to want is so great the deadly habit of endless hoarding for the future is formed, which smothers all real life, and is continued long after every reasonable need has been oversupplied. On Mount Hoffman I saw a curious dove-coloured bird that seemed half woodpecker, half magpie or crow. It screams something like a crow, but flies like a woodpecker, and has a long, straight bill with which I saw it opening the cones of the mountain and white-barked pines. It seems to keep to the heights, though no doubt it comes down for shelter during the winter, if not for food. So far as food is concerned, these bird mountaineers, I guess, can glean nuts enough, even in winter, from the different kinds of conifers, for always there are a few that have been unable to fly out of the cones and remain for hungry winter gleaners. August 2nd Clouds and showers, about the same as yesterday. Sketching all day on the North Dome, until four or five o'clock in the afternoon, when, as I was busily employed thinking only of the glorious Yosemite landscape, trying to draw every tree and every line and feature of the rocks, I was suddenly, and without warning, possessed with the notion that my friend, Professor J. D. Butler, of the State University of Wisconsin, was below me in the valley, and I jumped up, full of the idea of meeting him, with almost as much startling excitement as if he had suddenly touched me, to make me look up. Leaving my work without the slightest deliberation, I ran down the westward slope of the dome, and along the brink of the valley wall, looking for a way to the bottom, until I came to a side canyon, which, 
judging by its apparently continuous growth of trees and bushes, I thought might afford a practical way into the valley, and immediately began to make the descent, late as it was, as if drawn irresistibly. But after a while common sense stopped me, and explained that it would be long after dark ere I could possibly reach the hotel, that the visitors would be asleep, that nobody would know me, that I had no money in my pockets, and, moreover, was without a coat. I therefore compelled myself to stop, and finally succeeded in reasoning myself out of the notion of seeking my friend in the dark, whose presence I only felt in a strange telepathic way. I succeeded in dragging myself back through the woods to camp, never for a moment wavering, however, in my determination to go down to him next morning. This, I think, is the most unexplainable notion that ever struck me. Had someone whispered in my ear while I sat on the dome where I had spent so many days that Professor Butler was in the valley, I would not have been more surprised and startled. When I was leaving the university he said, "'Now, John, I want to hold you in sight and watch your career. Promise to write me at least once a year.' I received a letter from him in July, at our first camp in the Hollow, written in May, in which he said he might possibly visit California some time this summer, and therefore hoped to meet me. But inasmuch as he named no meeting-place, and gave no directions as to the course he would probably follow, and as I should be in the wilderness all summer, I had not the slightest hope of seeing him, and all thought of the matter had vanished from my mind until this afternoon, when he seemed to be wafted bodily almost against my face. Well, to-morrow I shall see, for, reasonable or unreasonable, I feel I must go. August 3. Had a wonderful day. Found Professor Butler as the needle compass finds the pole. So last evening's telepathy, transcendental revelation or whatever else it may be called, was true. For, strange to say, he had just entered the valley by way of the Coulterville Trail, and was coming up the valley past El Capitan, when his presence struck me. Had he then looked towards the North Dome with a good glass when it first came in sight, he might have seen me jump up from my work and run toward him. This seems the one well-defined marvel of my life, of the kind called supernatural. For, absorbed in glad nature, spirit wrappings, second sight, ghost stories, etc., have never interested me since boyhood, seeming comparatively useless and infinitely less wonderful than nature's open, harmonious, songful, sunny, everyday beauty. This morning, when I thought of having to appear among tourists at a hotel, I was troubled because I had no suitable clothes, and at best am desperately bashful and shy. I was determined to go, however, to see my old friend after two years among strangers, got on a clean pair of overalls, a cashmere shirt, and a sort of jacket, the best my camp wardrobe offered, tied my notebook on my belt, and strode away on my strange journey, followed by Carlo. 
I made my way through the gap discovered last evening, which proved to be Indian Canyon. There was no trail in it, and the rocks and brush were so rough that Carlo frequently called me back to help him down precipitous places. Emerging from the canyon shadows I found a man making hay on one of the meadows, and asked him whether Professor Butler was in the valley. "'I don't know,' he replied, "'but you can easily find out at the hotel. There are but few visitors in the valley just now. A small party came in yesterday afternoon, and I heard someone call Professor Butler or Butterfield or some name like that." In front of the gloomy hotel I found a tourist party adjusting their fishing-tackle. They all stared at me in silent wonderment, as if I had been seen dropping down through the trees from the clouds mostly, I suppose, on account of my strange garb. Inquiring for the office I was told that it was locked, and that the landlord was away. But I might find the landlady, Mrs. Hutchins, in the parlour. I entered in a sad state of embarrassment, and after I had waited in the big empty room and knocked at several doors, the landlady at length appeared, and, in reply to my question, said she rather thought Professor Butler was in the valley, but to make sure she would bring the register from the office. Among the names of the last arrivals I soon discovered the Professor's familiar handwriting, at the sight of which bashfulness vanished. And having learned that his party had gone up the valley, probably to the Vernal and Nevada Falls, I pushed on in glad pursuit, my heart now sure of its prey. In less than an hour I reached the head of the Nevada Canyon, at the Vernal Fall, and just outside of the spray discovered a distinguished-looking gentleman, who, like everybody else I have seen to-day, regarded me curiously as I approached. When I made bold to inquire if he knew where Professor Butler was, he seemed yet more curious to know what could possibly have happened that required a messenger for the Professor and instead of answering my question he asked, with military sharpness, "'Who wants him?' "'I want him,' I replied with equal sharpness. "'Why, do you know him?' "'Yes,' I said. "'Do you know him?' Astonished that any one in the mountains could possibly know Professor Butler, and find him as soon as he reached the valley, he came down to meet the strange mountaineer on equal terms and courteously replied, "'Yes, I know Professor Butler very well. I am General Alvord, and we were fellow students in Rutland, Vermont, long ago, when we were both young.' "'But where is he now?' I persisted, cutting short his story. "'He has gone beyond the falls with a companion to try to climb that big rock, the top of which you see from here.' His guide now volunteered the information that it was the liberty cap Professor Butler and his companion had gone to climb, and that if I waited at the head of the fall I should be sure to find them on their way down. I therefore climbed the ladders alongside the vernal fall, and was pushing forward, determined to go to the top of liberty cap rock in my hurry rather than to wait, if I should not meet my friend sooner. So heart-hungry! at times may one be to see a friend in the flesh, however happily full and carefree one's life may be. 
I had gone but a short distance, however, above the brow of the vernal fool, when I caught sight of him in the brush and rocks, half erect, groping his way, his sleeves rolled up, vest open, hat in his hand, evidently very hot and tired. When he saw me coming, he sat down on a boulder to wipe the perspiration from his brow and neck, and taking me for one of the valley guides, he inquired the way to the fall ladders. I pointed out the path marked with little piles of stones, on seeing which he called his companion, saying that the way was found, but he did not yet recognize me. When I stood directly in front of him, looked him in the face, and held out my hand, he thought I was offering to assist him in rising. "'Never mind,' he said. Then I said, "'Professor Butler, don't you know me?' "'I think not,' he replied. But catching my eye, suddenly recognition followed, and astonishment that I should have found him just when he was lost in the brush, and did not know that I was within hundreds of miles of him. "'John Muir! John Muir! Where have you come from?' Then I told him the story of my feeling his presence when he entered the valley last evening, when he was four or five miles distant as I sat sketching on the North Dome. This, of course, only made him wonder the more. Below the foot of the Vernal Fall the guide was waiting with his saddle-horse, and I walked along the trail, chatting all the way back to the hotel, talking of school-days, friends in Madison, of the students, how each had prospered, etc., ever and anon gazing at the stupendous rocks about us now growing indistinct in the gloaming, and again quoting from the poets. A rare ramble! It was late ere we reached the hotel, and General Alvord was waiting the professor's arrival for dinner. When I was introduced he seemed yet more astonished than the professor at my descent from Cloudland, and going straight to my friend without knowing in any ordinary way that he was even in California. They had come on direct from the East, had not yet visited any of their friends in the State, and considered themselves undiscoverable. As we sat at dinner the General leaned back in his chair, and, looking down the table, thus introduced me to the dozen guests or so, including the staring fisherman mentioned above. "'This man, you know, came down out of these huge trackless mountains, you know, to find his friend Professor Butler here the very day he arrived. And how did he know he was here? He just felt him, he says. This is the queerest case of Scotch far-sightedness I ever heard of, etc., etc., while my friend quoted Shakespeare, "'More things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy.' As the sun, ere he has risen, sometimes paints his image in the firmament, e'en so the shadows of events precede the events, and in to-day already walks to-morrow." Had a long conversation after dinner over Madison days. The professor wants me to promise to go with him some time on a camping trip in the Hawaiian Islands while I tried to get him to go back with me to camp in the High Sierra. 
but he says, "'Not now.' He must not leave the general, and I was surprised to learn that they are to leave the valley to-morrow or the next day. I'm glad I'm not great enough to be missed in the busy world. End of section 10